Welcome to the Ballpark Boys, a weekly podcast that explores the 30 ballparks of Major League Baseball. We're a group of baseball addicts who, back in 2011, set off in a rickety old hippie bus to catch a game in every MLB stadium. To celebrate the 10-year anniversary of our journey, we'll be retracing our steps by narrating our story and then diving deeper into the facts, figures, and fun anecdotes of every ballpark to give you an idea of what makes each unique. Follow us on social at ballpark underscore boys for a daily dose of ballpark trivia and visit ballparkboys.com for more information. We'll be starting this episode with the ballpark banter section, exploring Guaranteed Rate Field, the home of the Chicago White Sox. I'm Travis Smith, and with me on this episode today are Kendall Young and Jack Wilson. Thank you both for being here. So before we jump into the history of the ballpark, as always, I want to get your guys' first memories of visiting Guaranteed Rate Field 10 years ago. Jack, what do you first remember about Guaranteed Rate? Well, I remember, you know, true to Midwest form, that there was a gigantic rain delay before the game. Um, And... You know, Chicago gets a lot of flack for its winters and its sweltering hot summers, but there is just kind of a a flash flood right at the beginning of the game. And I remember watching, you know, the grounds crew struggling to put the tarp over the infield and there's no roof over that stadium. So shout out to the Midwest grounds crews who have to deal with Illinois orages and downpours that happened very suddenly. It took about 15, 20 minutes. I remember little waterfalls cascading down the guaranteed rate steps, but they did finish that baseball game that day. Kendall, what do you remember about guaranteed rate field? Yeah, you know, kind of in the same vein, maybe it was because, you know, the the crazy stormy weather we had that day, but from the second we walked in the gate to got to our seats, it was like, it was just kind of gloomy. Like the stadium is dark. It's dreary. The, the team wears black and white. The seats are dark green. Like, yeah, it just kind of felt like, you know, the, the whole stadium was just kind of uh, dreary, black and gray. And, you know, I'm sure the, the weather was the, the biggest factor in that. But, um, you know, it was uh, it was certainly just uh, a unique experience. And like Jack said, true to Midwest form, right? You can't always expect a perfectly sunny day in Chicago in the middle of summer. Well, we aren't going to let the weather influence our views of guaranteed rate field. But before we take you through what you can see there today, and hopefully if you do get the chance to visit, it's a little bit brighter outside, we're going to take you through the history of this ballpark. The Chicago White Sox are one of baseball's oldest franchises, having been around since 1901. After a short inaugural stint at Southside Stadium, the White Sox spent 81 years at Comiskey Park, which was built in 1910 and was every bit as archaic as its origin year suggested. In 1989, as creaky old Comiskey was beginning to show signs of fatigue, the White Sox opted to build a brand new ballpark right next to Comiskey and chose to have it look and function, well, pretty much exactly like old Comiskey. We'll talk a little bit more about the specificities here later in the episode, But from the original color of the seats, which were black, to the design of the ballpark, to the exploding scoreboard in center field, everything at the new stadium harkened to the Sox old home. Even its name when it opened in 1990 was Old Comiskey Park. This changed to U.S. Cellular Field and is now Guaranteed Rate Field. The unfortunate thing for Guaranteed Rate Field 
is that it was built just before Camden Yards and thus barely missed the fad of the retro classic approach ushered in by the Orioles Stadium that all other parks have taken on since. Guaranteed rate isn't the most homey field, let's be honest, with spiraling and ramped concrete walkways ushering fans up to higher concourses and a fairly symmetrical look to the entirety of the stadium. Since it opened in 1990, the ballpark has received a plethora of complaints from locals and fans, with many calling it a cookie-cutter stadium, especially in comparison to the other 90s ballparks like Camden, Coors, and T-Mobile. This contributed to the ballpark's duo of insulting nicknames. It was known as The Cell when it was U.S. Cellular, and now is known as The Great as Guaranteed Rate Field. But we do have to give some props to the great. While many Sox fans are still hoping the team pulls a Texas Rangers and just builds a brand new stadium only 24 years after their last one was opened, the stadium owners group have done their best to make Guaranteed Rate feel a little bit more welcoming. The upper deck went through major renovations after fans continued to complain about ugliness and a lack of accessibility, and a multi-tiered concourse was actually added uh, beyond the outfield wall to give it a bit more of a fan-friendly experience as well. But before we unpack what guaranteed rate is like if you get to go there today, as always, we're going to take you through the ballpark's walkability score. Kellen's not with us today, so Kendall is filling in. Kendall, how does guaranteed rate field score on a walkability level? Yeah, thanks, Travis. You know, Walkability for guaranteed rate, um, it's certainly an interesting one. There's, there's no denying that guaranteed rate field is in a city. It's just pretty far south in Chicago. But, you know, nonetheless, it's part of Chicago proper. There's an L station right next to the ballpark, which certainly boosts its walkability just through sheer access to public transportation. It is also surrounded by streets. However, these streets are primarily freeways or industrial thoroughfares that lead to the warehouses nearby. There's actually even a rail yard adjacent to the stadium. Suffice to say that while you can get to the ballpark from downtown pretty easily, there's no real walking being done around the ballpark. And most people just drive to the grate as it's surrounded by giant parking lots. Hmm. Because of this, we're going to give it a 45 on the walkability scale. It's certainly not as bad as some, and the L access does help a ton. But also, I really don't know what you'd walk to other than your car or the L stop. I wonder if this ballpark being an urban ballpark, it scores the lowest on the walkability scales of all others that are considered inside a major city. Well, we'll have to keep exploring to, to see. That takes us to the next part of the ballpark banter section of the podcast, where we're going to take you around the bases of Guaranteed Rate Field, giving you three things where if you're lucky enough to go and visit the ballpark, you should go and see. And if not, you should at least know about. Jack, what's on first at the home of the White Sox? On first is just the kind of funny way that the ballpark tries to cool people down. Now, the White Sox play in Chicago, which is known as the Windy City, and it's often scorned for its frigid temperatures in the winter, but can, of course, get hot as hell during the summer. Between sweltering Illinois heat and some humidity that comes off of Lake Michigan, temperatures during day games in peak July and August at guaranteed rate can easily touch triple digits. Now, to deal with this, the White Sox have added some rather odd methods of helping fans cool down. There are two rain rooms in the ballpark, which are exactly what they sound like. If you're getting too hot, you can hop into one of these. There's one on the first level and one in the upper deck and just stand there as the mist trickles down onto you. A rain room is an interesting concept 
do do these things work? You know, I think it's a good idea, but in all honesty, the rooms are pretty gross. <laughs> and people <laughs> who enter here just kind of look like vegetables at the grocery store being sprayed to ke- keep fresh. I'm imagining a tomato at at your local grocery store, you know, yeah, as you just said where the the spray comes on every minute or something except instead of vegetables it's people in a in a ballpark definitely yeah it's kind of like a weird opposite of hot yoga or something (laughs) anyways the second option in terms of cooling down is way more interesting and in center field there's a legit shower stall that is just open to the public to step in and rinse off it looks like a porta potty and is advertised as the plumber's local 130 shower, which I'm guessing is an ode to the union group or something. This was actually one of the things that the White Sox brought over from the old Comiskey Park. And while I hope it isn't used to actually shower in, it's a fun quirk that's emblematic of the ballpark and the sweltering hot Chicago summers. A shower head in center field helping sweaty Chicago fans cool off in the middle of the game, and a rain room that dumps mist onto them. We talked a lot about Chase Field and how they use the closed roof and the gigantic AC units to combat the Arizona heat. This strikes me as a fairly unique, slightly crazy way of cooling people down and combating the Midwest humidity. But if I'm back at Guaranteed Rate Field and it's hot, I'm planning probably on sticking my head underneath that shower head. Anyway, rounding first and heading to second, in center field at guaranteed rate are two blue seats. Now, the White Sox primary color is black, and guaranteed rate field therefore features a lot of black, and mixed with the dark green seats of the outfield and dark gray paneling of the concourses, the stadium can feel very, well, dark. But amidst the sea of dark colors, there are two bright blue seats in the outfield, both of which stand out not just visually, but as monuments to two of the most important moments of the White Sox's most important season. This team won the World Series in 2005, an immensely important year for the franchise, not just because it was a title, but it was the team's first title since 1917, and only the sixth time the White Sox had made the playoffs since. That's one playoff appearance nearly every 14 years for over 83 years. And since the Cubs obviously hadn't won since either, this was the first World Series won in the city of Chicago since World War I ended. The White Sox run is immortalized by two home runs that were hit in that World Series, both of which happened in Game 2. The first is Paul Konerko's Grand Slam, which he hit in the bottom of the seventh to give the White Sox the lead. And the second is Scott Podsednik's walk-off in the bottom of the ninth of the same game, which gave them the win and propelled them to their four-game sweep of the Astros. The spots where both home runs landed are the blue seats, which are actually originals from that 2005 game when randomly the outfield seats were painted blue. They are now a dark shade of green, but the two blue specks that stand out there provide not just some color, but some fond memories for fans as well. So if you get to go to Guaranteed Rate Field, try to get there a little early before the outfield seats are filled so that you can try and spot where the two blue seats are. Or maybe you're lucky enough to hold a ticket where you're sitting in one of them. Rounding second and heading to third, Kendall, I believe third base is actually outside of the stadium in this instance. On third base is the Champions Plaza. 
As you just stated, 2005 was by far and away the most important year in White Sox franchise history. And the monuments to it are not restricted just to the blue seats in the outfield. In fact, the biggest monument at Guaranteed Rate Field is also to the 2005 team. Standing just outside the home plate entrance is the Champions Plaza, a gigantic brick baseball diamond-shaped plaza that encircles a large black and gray statue. When it first opened, fans could pay to become a member of the Legacy Brick Program, in which they could purchase a brick and inscribe a message to the team on it, which would be placed into the plaza. So is this like at Angel Stadium where they have a similar brick baseball diamond outside of the home plate entrance, but each brick at each position is in honor of angels that once played there? Is this in a similar way where each brick honors White Sox of old? Sort of. Not White Sox players, but the entire White Sox franchise. Mm. The, The base path of the brick diamond functions as a timeline of the White Sox as a ball club with historical moments noted on various bricks. But it is also leading to the gigantic statue in the middle, which, of course, is a 50,000-pound monument to the 2005 championship team. The monument is a slightly odd mixture of rounded black chrome with life-size images and bronze statues of players from that 05 team embossed into it, including Paul Canerco, Joe Creedy, El Duque, Orlando Hernandez, Jeff Blum, and Juan Uribe. To someone visiting the great who is a fan of a team with multiple champions, the plaza and monument might seem a little bit over the top, but to those who are fans of a team that's yet to win it all, well, we'll probably want to erect something similar. That sounds familiar. If the Mariners win something similar, I bet you we renamed the entire stadium 2000 blank champions ballpark. Yeah, if the Mariners do a similar brick message program i might have a couple of things i, w- I want to say on that brick we'll be buying multiple <laughs> bricks one for each of us and then one for this podcast we're going to yeah, want to we... tear down lumen field next to it just to erect a giant mariners monument there rounding third and coming home as mentioned earlier guaranteed rate field has had a handful of unfortunate nicknames most prominently the cell and the great but even when it was comiskey park most locals in the city of chicago have simply referred to the stadium as Sox Park, and they still do today. The name has grown out of the original title of Old Comiskey Park, which was called White Sox Park for the first three years of its existence starting way back in 1909, and has stuck around as an appropriate up-yours to corporate naming rights and the unfortunate other nicknames of the ballpark. That wraps it up for the ballpark banter section of this episode. Before we proceed to the narrative section... We'd love it if you followed us on social media at ballpark underscore boys for a daily dose of ballpark trivia. And be sure to join us next Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern as we continue to retrace our journey and move south to St. Louis to check out Bush Stadium. Until then, let's continue our story. Guaranteed Rate Field, then called U.S. Cellular Field. 8.45 p.m., Tuesday, June 21st. The rain pounded the concrete walkways. Small rivers formed, cascading their way down the steps toward the ball field like little waterfalls. The ferocious wind that had picked up was twisting the downpour sideways, showing no regard for our covered position in the concourse and drenching the four of us without mercy. 
It'll only last a few more minutes, an older man next to me said, spotting our shock at how quickly the system had moved in and delayed the game, which, only ten minutes before, had been proceeding nicely under open Chicago skies. This happens all the time. From our vantage point beneath the cement ceilings of the third base concourse, U.S. Cellular Field appeared dark. Yet this was not just due to the dingy weather. This place is normally dark. The home of the White Sox is made primarily of concrete, the majority of which has been painted black to match the team's main color. The railings are black, the scoreboards are black, the light fixtures are black. Even every one of the more than 40,000 seats is painted black. Since we visited, the stadium has had its name changed to Guaranteed Rate Field, a title that is combined with these dark confines to earn it the unfortunate nickname of The Great, which actually might be a step up from its former nickname, The Cell. Opened in 1991, the 28-year-old ballpark still pays tribute to the White Sox original home. Old Comiskey Park, which had stood directly across the street and housed the ball club for over 80 years. Pinwheels on the scoreboard spiral whenever a Sox player hits a home run, just as they did back at Old Comiskey. A showerhead in the center field walkway offers fans the ability to cool off during hot summer games, just as they were able to do at Old Comiskey. And before shifting titles to U.S. Cellular Field in 2003, The stadium was called Comiskey Park, just as it had been at Old Comiskey. Duh. Even though we were uncomfortably crammed into that dark and wet walkway, we were entertained nonetheless because the atmosphere was wonderful. That evening's game, which was currently suspended between the 5th and 6th innings, was one of the annual meetings between the Chicago White Sox and their north side rivals, the Cubs, in a series better known as the Crosstown Classic. It is one of only four series in baseball where teams from the same city meet up, joining the Subway Series, New York Yankees and Mets, the Freeway Series, Los Angeles Dodgers and Angels, and, if you count it, the Bay Bridge Series between the Oakland Athletics and the San Francisco Giants. We were fortunate to also catch the Subway Series on this trip, but... In all honesty, the Windy City's rivalry might top the Big Apples. The L trains to get to the cell had been a buzz with insults and the classic banter of hometown pride going up against hometown pride. The game itself had been a continuous chorus of chants with Let's Go Sox and Let's Go Cubs echoing back and forth, making it difficult to discern which team truly had home field advantage. And the damp walkway in which we now stood was a sea of jerseys, as the black and white pinstripes of the White Sox apparel disagreed with the red and blue of the Cubs apparel. Some shirts stepped away from promoting their teams and instead claimed pride to their neighborhoods, broadcasting simple phrases like North Side or South Side. One woman standing near us wore a custom jersey that was split down the middle, White Sox on the left side and Cubs on the right representing her love for both teams. The name on her back just said, Chicago. Looking out at the tarped-up field through the steady stream of water that dripped from the edges of the second terrace above, my eyes fell on a scoreboard across the way. 
It was flashing notices for the White Sox upcoming games, the next of which was tomorrow's series finale against the Cubs. Reading the date listed next to the start time, I immediately jumped. Oh God, I said, scaring the woman in the two-toned jersey. What date is it? What? Fraser asked lazily from my right. It's the 21st today? Uh, yeah. Why? I need to pay that speeding ticket. Andrew turned to look at me. Speeding ticket? Yeah, the one from the first drive. Oh, no, I know it, but what on earth is making you think of that right now? I was looking at the scoreboard, and it says tomorrow's game is June 22nd, which means today is June 21st. So? So, I was told to have that $175 postmarked within 10 days of receiving the ticket. A pause followed this. You got that the day we left, right? Michael asked. Yeah, I replied. The 11th. My God, he then said, his mouth falling open and his eyebrows rising uncontrollably. We've only been on the road for 10 days. It was a statement of fact, but also a statement of fear. At first, the thought of having been gone for only 10 days just seemed crazy. Time flies, but soon, the true weight of Michael's realization washed over each of us like the drenching rain we were staring at. A few more seconds of silence passed until Fraser spoke next. Jesus, he said, his voice now barely audible above the pounding of the rain and the whistling of the wind. Ten days? Yeah. He let out a low whistle, and then summarized what we each were now thinking. God, it feels like it's been so much longer. Ten days? Ten days? That's all we had been traveling for? The feeling that hit me as I came to grips with this was not a happy feeling. It was one of anxiety, almost claustrophobia. Fraser was right. It indeed felt like we had been on the road for much longer than just ten days, and understandably so. We had already seen eight ballparks, received a speeding ticket, visited a mechanic, encountered a drug dealer, fought 108-degree heat a few times, and fought with each other a few times. That was all in 10 days, and we had 43 more left. The trip wasn't even one-fifth of the way through. How many miles have we covered? Andrew asked. Uh... Michael replied, scratching his head. Pretty sure we were a little over 4,000 when I checked earlier today. God, I heard Andrew mumble. I didn't have to be told why. It wasn't just the things we had experienced over the first 10 days that made the remainder of this trip seem so intimidating. It was also the things our car had seen that had made the remainder of this trip so intimidating. In a little over a week of use... The van had already shown many issues, from the omnipresent brake lights back on the first drive, to the nearly constant clicking sound that had set in since, to the non-existent air conditioning and cruise control. Every mile we had rolled thus far had been filled with unease as to whether the next mile would even be a possibility. 
How many miles did we predict our route would require? I asked to Michael, scared over the response. Over 14,000. So we have at least 10,000 remaining? Yeah. I looked back out onto the rain-soaked field, watching the puddles grow larger on the white tarp that was stretched out over the diamond. The storm was showing no sign of letting up, despite the local having told us that it would be over in a few minutes. Instead, the water continued to pound U.S. Cellular Field, and the impromptu waterfalls kept rushing down the stepped concrete walkways. Somewhere in the parking lot, the van sat, drenched and aching. The story of the Ballpark Boys is captured in the book Touch Em All by Travis Parker Smith, narrated in each episode by Kellen Larson. The music for this podcast is performed by Forrest Wilson. 